Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. Congress is roughly a week away from a critical deadline to fund the federal government. And as is the case with the narrowly divided legislative body, there's uncertainty a deal can get done to avert a government shutdown. This comes as the U.S. Senate continues to be at loggerheads over a package to provide aid to Ukraine and Israel and for more border security. Joining us to talk about these spending decisions and to answer a slew of listener questions is U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt. Schmidt recently commemorated his one-year anniversary in Congress and is a member of the Armed Services and Commerce Committees. Senator, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. It's great to be back. You have typically voted against funding bills that have averted government shutdowns, and, and typically your reasoning has been that all of the provisions are stuffed into one piece of legislation rather than multiple bills. First of all, is that an accurate reflection of your position? And if so, why is that a sticking point for you? Yeah, I think that a lot of people, um, I certainly didn't probably have a full appreciation of how broken the the appropriations process and that system is in Congress. Most people are familiar with the way state governments do it or other you know, governing entities where you have separate appropriations bills, they make their way through committee, they go to the floor, there's debate, there's amendments, then it goes to the other chamber, you know, this how have a bill become a law kind of thing. And there's a conference committee and you have a final vote. That's not what happens at all. And so I think these sort of omnibus uh, bills that a few people in leadership, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, control then sort of unveil and say, take it or leave it, you either vote for this or you're for a government shutdown is a false choice. And so there is a movement afoot, and I would say a bipartisan movement afoot, kind of a reform agenda to change that. To give you an example, Jason, I've been in, Cong- I've been in the Senate for a year. We have spent a total of eight hours in a year on any appropriations bills in the United States Senate. And so I just don't think that's the way to do this. And so, um, yeah, so I've been trying to be consistent about that. I think you can still affect the process. But until we fix that, I just think that um, if you just go along with the broken system, you're not really helping reform it. So you've often talked about how you feel the federal government is spending too much money. If you had a magic appropriations wand, what are some of the things you would like to reduce that would make a significant difference? Well, I think that um, a lot of times people get hung up on, um, you know, fixing it all at one time. I mean, ultimately, these hundreds of billions of dollars sort of add up. Um, And so uh, I think there's some important things to do. There's, you know, there's billions of dollars that we, you know, for thousands more IRS agents, there's a bunch of uh, COVID dollars that I think we could pull back. I mean, that would be a good start. Uh, But ultimately, right now, just as recently as 2019, we were spending about $4 trillion, okay, a year. Um, we take in now in 2024, $5 trillion. Uh, Joe Biden wants to spend $7 trillion and other people want to spend $6 trillion. So even if we could get just to levels of spending of just a couple of years ago, we could balance our budget, but it requires some tough decisions. Wouldn't the IRS agents, though, be going after people that 
haven't paid all of their taxes and there would be a net gain in government revenue. That isn't, that's the argument that the other side would use. But I just think you see this army of, of bureaucrats going out fanning across harassing small business owners. I don't think that's ultimately how it plays out. So as you'll hear throughout this uh, segment, we've gotten a lot of listener questions, including one from friend of the show, Kathy Gilsonan. The Pentagon can't account for like 60% of its budget. You're on the Oversight Committee of Jurisdiction. What can you tell taxpayers that you're doing to solve this problem? And Kathy also noted that since you've been very critical of DEI programs, that amounts to a pittance compared to everything else that it's unaccounted for. Yeah, so the the last piece of that first, uh, the DEI, I mean, we spend, you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on this DEI, DEI programming. My objection there is that it's incredibly divisive. Our military has been this great uh, uh, meritocracy where anybody from any walk of life can have ticker tape parades in New York to celebrate them. We should celebrate that. But this divisive oppressor versus oppressed ideology doesn't have any place in our military. Uh, it's a place where you wear uniforms and you have similar haircuts all to build commonality, not to divide people. So that's sort of a, that's, it, it, I guess it's related to money, but it's also sort of a, a, a philosophical point of view. It's a good question and it's a good point. So I serve on the Armed Services Committee. We play a critical role in oversight. And if you pay attention, we post all of our hearings uh, and all my questions online on our YouTube page, there's a lot of questions about uh, oversight and how we spend our money. And the Pentagon, um, the God's honest truth is they've not been upfront with taxpayers about these audits. They don't sort of perform them. And so that's certainly something I think there's a point of agreement that we'll continue to focus on. Going back to the DEI questions, I've spoken extensively with uh, Department of Social Services Director Robert Nodell, and this is a state issue, but he's told me that DEI programs are pretty critical to retaining and recruiting people who are from traditionally disadvantaged minority groups, and especially because they have to interact with black and brown people and also just, you know, refugees in some cases. Kirksville, where you went to school, has a Congolese community. He's found that to be very useful. Is he wrong? And if well, so, I think couldn't there's... those things be used in the military for recruitment and retention too? Well, I think it's hurt our recruiting in the military. We've heard from service members who've come forward that this has actually hurt recruiting. We have a real recruitment challenge in the military. It's down in basically uh, every branch. Now, look, the terms diversity, equity, inclusion, I would take issue with the term equity versus equality, right? You can't guarantee a result. I don't think that's a that's a, an Ameri- very American concept. But the truth is, some of those seem very innocuous. That's not the objection. The objection is this sort of Marxist pedagogy, this critical uh, pedagogy that essentially pits people, everybody's viewed oppressor versus oppressed. You know, explain your privilege. I mean, these sorts of things. Look, uh, you want to write a white paper on it, that's fine. You want to have a debate about it in a public forum, that's fine. I just don't think it has any place in our military. Has there anybody, has there been any people in the military who have said, like, these programs are helpful? I mean, obviously, anybody could say any program is bad, but what, what about the other side? I think we've heard from the political class, the folks that are pushing this down. Uh, on our military, they would argue that. Um, but when you talk to the actual folks who are who are training people and the people who've come forward and objected to it, they just don't view it as helpful. It's very divisive in the military. You've been outspoken about bundling funding for Ukraine, Israel, and border security. And I want to split this up sure. just, just so we could be consistent. Uh, if, if you had, let's start with Ukraine funding. If you had your way and it was voted on in isolation, don't you think that the Senate would vote to approve Ukraine funding, given that many people in your caucus support it? Yes. Okay. Do you do you support additional funding for Ukraine? Not right now, I don't. Can I you don't... explain why? Sure. I, I just think that there's been no real accountability here. We've already spent about 100 
$120 billion. There's another request for another $62 billion. Uh, we've been told in briefings that there's another $100 billion coming next year. My objection is that there's no articulation of what victory looks like. There's no articulation of how our European allies are going to step up. There's no articulation about accountability. I mean, there's a report yesterday that came out that's in the Washington Post now that a billion dollars is just completely unaccounted for with weapon systems. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that um, we should have a real debate about it and we should have a vote on it. But I don't support blank checks for endless wars. I just think that this is something that, uh, we, that we ought to have a debate. And I will tell you, we've not had a debate. Chuck Schumer doesn't want to have that debate. Um, and certainly there is some Republican support for that. But uh, I'm not in that category. Wouldn't victory, or at least putting Ukraine in a position where they can negotiate, include like cutting the Crimean land bridge in half or even being able to strike in Crimea enough to actually invade and take it over? Well, like those are, th you ask like what, what victory is. I've, I'm half Ukrainian, so perhaps I pay attention to this more than I can. But those are like tangible ways that you could put Ukraine in a position to succeed and not giving them any weapons is probably not going to accomplish either of those goals. Well, I think it's about what's the what's America's role and what's our share, right? And so my part of my problem is that the European allies who claim this is an existential threat, it's on their doorstep, haven't stepped up. Like Germany? Like Germany. Did, yeah. as, a, as a German American, are you ashamed of how Germany has been so compromised by Russian nat uh, natural gas? <laughs> well, listen, I think that, yeah, they shouldn't have been as reliant on, on Russia for their energy needs. I think that's for, certainly coming to light, right? Um, as a German-American, I certainly don't speak for the German government. I'm an American who has... I, I know. Yeah, the, no, the, I get The half-Polish inside of me is just chuckling right now, but continue. Sure. But, uh, but no, look, I think that, Illis, uh, if you study history, and certainly um, I've dug even more deeply into 19th century history and the Crimean War. I mean, a lot of these conflicts date back a very, very long time. I do think that uh, what you articulated is a real conversation to have about who should be at the negotiating table and how do you bring a resolution to this. That's a fair thoughtful conversation. But I will tell you in Washington, Jason, that's not what it is. It's we will win. We're winning. We're going to push them back to wherever they were at. We're going to get Crimea back. Crimea back. That's not realistic. That's not the reality on the ground. And so I think until leaders recognize the reality on the ground and have a strategy that helps accomplish what's reasonable, it's just, again, more money every year without us ever being um, told really what victory looks like. Um, I want to move on to Israel as sure. well. Why does Israel need any aid when they're a top 30 economy and they can purchase any weapons for military conflicts themselves? Well, the fact of the matter is we have the weapon systems that they do need, whether it's the Iron Dome or others. And so, um, and again, I think the request there is different in my view because they have a very clear articulation of what needs to happen and what they need and a timeline to get it done. And so, uh, it's not that I'm opposed to these, you know, carte blanche, but I think the, the Israel example is very different. And also, listen, everybody saw what happened on October 7th. Uh, they need the room and diplomatic space uh, and, and, and uh, moral cover from the United States to do what needs to be done to get rid of Hamas. If, if they aren't able to accomplish that, we're just going to be dealing with this issue over and over. But isn't like the goal of eradicating Hamas similar to like the war on terror? I mean, we saw what happened in Afghanistan where we tried to eradicate the Taliban and they stuck around even though they, we had a military victory. Isn't this just going to create a prolonged conflict that is going to result in thousands of thousands of Palestinians being killed? Well, I, look, if you're, uh, I've been to Israel. Um, if you understand the proximity of these threats, 
uh, and, uh, and, and where Gaza is and where the West Bank is in relation to population centers, I think you gain a greater appreciation of how existential they view it. And by the way, these chants from the river to the sea, uh, and, and they, Hamas wants to eradicate Israel off the map. And that means, by the way, killing every Jew and Christian in sight. This is a radical ideology, and I think they have every right to try to, to, to wipe it out. Well, there's also been some pretty startling comments from Israeli ministers. In fact, Benjamin Netanyahu had to actually push back against the idea that the people that have fled from their homes in Gaza wouldn't be come back, wouldn't come back, and that like Israel was going to resettle there. So, why should Americans assist an Israeli government that makes statements and aspirations like that? I don't think anybody really believes, uh, and I've not heard that uh, Israel thinks they're going to. Um uh, control Gaza after they wipe out Hamas. I do think, though, uh, that when you have a Palestinian government that has a pay-for-slay system, I mean, they literally pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, um, uh, to terrorists who kill Israelis, um, we ought to be questioning. And I think ultimately the head of the snake here is Iran. And, uh, and one of my big objections was releasing a lot of these dollars and not enforcing sanctions that allowed Iran to give Hamas money and Hezbollah money. And so I think we're going to have to deal with that at some point. We were talking earlier about DEI efforts in the military. And I do want to point out that the Pentagon's inspector general reported last year that the majority of would-be recruits are not enlisting because of fear of death in combat and because potential recruits grew up hearing about casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they didn't find DEI was one of their reasons. Can you just respond to that point? I could just tell you that service members that I've talked to being on that committee, I mean, certainly we've led the charge on pushing back on this. And I just don't think it has any place. It just doesn't. I mean, the idea that you would be um, sitting Marines in a room who are, we're, you know, who have a mission to be lethal and protect this country, that you would be um, dividing them by oppressor and oppressed based on uh, mutable characteristics is wrong. I'm talking with U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt. He just celebrated his first year. I mean, celebration may be a, a tough <laughs> word, but depends he, on the day. He just probably. commemorated his first year in office. So we got a lot of questions from primarily from Reddit, which has become a a big source for questions on our show and. Would you believe it? There are a lot of questions about Donald Trump. I'm oh, sure really? that okay. you're shocked. One of the questions from Reddit user Queequeg789 says, if a president orders the assassination of a rival politicians and other U.S. citizens, do you believe that president should be immediately removed from office and prosecuted? Now, this caught my attention because your former solicitor general, John Sauer, was asked this very question in an appeals case regarding Trump's presidential immunity. And Sauer's response, and I'm paraphrasing here, was a qualified yes, saying that he can be prosecuted if he's impeached and convicted. But that exchange was pretty startling. And a lot of people panned your former solicitor general for, for saying that. Can you answer the, the Redditor's question? Well, first of all, I'd say John Sauer is a brilliant lawyer. Um, brilliant lawyer, clerk for Justice Scalia, and I uh, was really proud of his work as a solicitor general. And we were leading the charge on a lot of important fights when I was attorney general. Um, I think that, uh, look, if you look at the um, um, that sort of presidential immunity, which they're which they're talking about, I mean, I suppose you could go through a thousand different hypotheticals. The truth is, the founders were very worried about this very thing, that they were much more concerned about. 
um, factions politicizing and weaponizing, whether it's, you know, the criminal court system or the civil court system or the president and hamstring his ability or her ability to make important decisions. And so I think that's what this issue is going to come down to. I think ultimately it will end up in the Supreme Court. I know it's in the D.C. Circuit of Appeals. I don't know how they'll rule on this. But I think it's a very important proposition because, look, just like with a lot of this uh, uh, politicization of the uh, this sort of lawfare that's happening right now, it's very dangerous road to go down, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, because this thing can get turned around pretty easily uh, in actions that maybe uh, Barack Obama took when he was president. Um, I, I just don't think that's a place we want to be in. Zach's damn man on Reddit asks, is Joe Biden unequivocally the legally elected president of the United States? No qualifiers. No. Well, actually, did Joe Biden legitimately win the 2020 election? If Schmidt can't give a yes or no answer to that, then there's really nothing else we need to hear from him. Yes or no? Did he win the election? Joe Biden was sworn in as president. I've never like disputed that. Now, clearly, um, I was part of the briefing that took place about some of the irregularities that happened with the election, principally because COVID was used in a way to change. The state legislatures are charged by the Constitution to, to set the time, place and manner of elections. And not through some of these consent decrees that happened and not through like in Pennsylvania, for example, um, when the legislature said we're going to have mail-in voting, but they're all going to be counted on Election Day. And the courts changed that without the legislature voting on. So I think if you actually look at, by the way, every ch every election since 2000 has had court challenges. Mm -hmm. And so that was if we want, I think a lot of this, to be perfectly honest with you is meant to quell dissent. And so I'm never going to back away when I was a lawyer and attorney general making specific challenges. That's happened in a lot of elections over time. But I think right now, the scary thing, Jason, I think what's happening in this country is there's an effort to sort of intimidate, um, whether it be conservatives, this go around, uh, to raising legitimate concerns. But, so. but, but, I, but And I will move on from this afterwards. But like, you know that you know how many courts looked at the 2020 elections, and you know how many courts rejected President Trump's arguments. Well, like our, it's, listen, it's, it's it's clear he lost the election. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that the effort that I was involved with, um, justices agree. A couple of justices on the Supreme Court thought we had standing. We were we were bounced because we didn't have standing. So we actually got a number of questions on policies that don't get brought up very much. Bry die 23 on Reddit. Reddit asks, Schmidt advocated for his epileptic son in 2014 to pass a bill that allowed families to access CBD oil as treatment. Will he consider working to reschedule marijuana away from a level one substance? Adults like myself with intractable e epilepsy and other neurological disorders deserve access to cannabis products. Yeah. So I listen, this was something that... Um uh, I just didn't feel like uh, people from Missouri had to travel to Colorado um, for that medication. And so I'm going to be uh, an advocate for those sorts of things. The rescheduling issue um, is a little bit more complicated. But for example, there's something called right the Safe Banking Act right now that would actually allow. Uh, I support that. Um, I don't want to see that get, get uh, um, sort of piled on with a bunch of unrelated issues, but that would make access more available in a state like Missouri that has legalized marijuana, because right now you have a banking system because of the federal issues that don't allow you to fully uh, capitalize. And it also would mean that like, unless you have a large pile of cash, you, you can't get into the market. Right. And, and I would imagine that's why there's a lot of racial disparities when it comes to who can enter yeah, the marijuana so I think, industry. And those are some common sense things. And look, I think that uh, obviously the questions that you're reading, some of these are highly charged. I'm more than willing to answer the questions. They, they are very charged. It's fine. Continue. It's fine. This but, one, though, wasn't. 
accent. No, it's fine. Listen, this is part of the job, and I welcome it. I think that people – look, you have to have these pressure release valves. That's why I'm such a big advocate for free speech. I think that if people feel like they're closed out and they can't talk to people that are elected, um, it leads to more frustrations. I'm perfectly fine with that. But I think this is a good example, this question and some of the solutions. There are a lot of things in Washington that are very bipartisan, um, including some bills that I've already gotten passed. Well, this is – a less charged question. I want to know if there's a legitimate plan to address health care issues in the U.S. I spoke to a person earlier this week undergoing chemo, 63 years old, just retired, and may now lose everything they've worked for for 45-plus years due to medical costs. Missouri has a sum of 57 rural hospitals in the state, but has watched 40 facilities lose essential services or close their doors completely in the last 18 years. Is there a plan to, d- to address this issue? Uh, so healthcare, yeah, this is, um, I mean, it's an 800 pound gorilla, right? Um, it's a big challenge, but certainly something that I've dived into and am interested in. I think that uh, if you were to crystallize this in probably a, a very short period of time, one of the things that we should be focused on, I think we can be focused on is greater transparency. And also, um, the consumers are so far removed, Jason, from any kind of economic rational decision in the healthcare marketplace because like insurance pays for it, doesn't pay for it. That's the only thing that gets asked. And that's why you see, I think, skyrocketing skyrocketing costs all the time and why a lot of people are left out, particularly in rural areas. And so I think we've got to have more transparency in the system, more uh, consumer choice. And I think that ultimately will drive down cost. Automation invasion on Reddit asks, How do stricter abortion laws strengthen Missouri's desirability in the global workplace? Why would someone who gets hired in St. Louis choose to live on this side of the Mississippi instead of in Illinois? So you were the person that signed the abortion ban into law, which doesn't have any exceptions for rape or incest. Um, What would you say to that questioner? Well, listen, I was attorney general charged with uh, issuing a legal opinion that Roe v. Wade had been overturned um, in the Dobbs decision. That's not my personal view on abortion. That was my job. And your personal view on abortion is? Is that I support exceptions for life of the mother, rape and incest. That's been my that's been my position. Continue, sir. Yeah. And so, um, look, I think people make a lot of decisions about where they leave. I think a lot of people are moving to a bunch of different states based on a very complex set of matrix uh, that include tax policy opportunities. And my final question for you, and I don't have the Redditor's name, is the candy desk in the Senate real? It is real. Uh, Senator Braun from Indiana has the candy desk. It used to be, I don't know who had it before me, um, but it's uh, but it's a lot of hard candy, I'll be honest. And I'm a, I'm a kind of a chocolate guy, so I don't partake. Hard candy? So like blow-up pops or... Yeah, like... Uh, Jolly Ranchers? Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, that's disappointing. It really is. That was a great disappointment of one of the things that you learn on the Senate floor. And well, my desk is Harry Truman's desk, which is very cool, but I don't have the candy desk. Well, maybe one day, maybe in year four or five. But Senator, thank you so much for joining us on sure. the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. This episode was produced by Jason Rosenbaum. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. 
and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.